welcome to another episode of Half Hour with Astra Theatre Company. Y'all, I'm here today with an amazing guest, someone whose career has really exploded, but who somehow is just a beautiful person and beautiful artist. And get this, y'all, they're from Kansas City. You've seen his work on Ellen. You've seen him in some movies coming up. And he just released a Christmas special, which, y'all, you got to check it out. I know it's March, but <laughs> by the time this comes out. But, you know, it could be Christmas all year round. Uh, it's the one and only Kaylin Allen. What's up, Kaylin? I'm wonderful. How are you, Taylor? I'm good. Did you like that intro? I like to spit I did. I, I, but I, I, I wish you would have, I wish you would have spoke about, cause you know, I do a lot of podcast interviews, but it's very rarely that I actually do an interview with someone that I actually know and have done shows with. You left out that little part of the story. Oh, well, we're going to get right in there and talk about it all. <laughs> yeah, I guess our, our, our paths did cross probably 2010, I'm going to say the first time. Was it, uh, what was the first show that we did together? Was it All Shook Up? Something like that, I think. Sounds okay. about right. Um, okay. So yeah. yes, Kaylin and I were very lucky enough to participate in a really awesome youth theater program in Kansas, one of many, um, mm -hmm. called Music Theater Kansas City. And we were in a show called All Shook Up, and it mm -hmm. was a fantastic and hilarious time. What it do you think from that? I remember uh, you were the tallest person in the cast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I remember uh, being at... Broadway at Baker because that's where we did it. It was a week-long camp that we all stayed and I remember uh, it was just a great time. I think that was probably one of my favorite shows that we've done you know uh, as far as Broadway Baker or with MTKC which at the time it was called MTYP mm -hmm. and I remember Madison was your love interest. Yes. Madison Stottle. Shout out and Madison Stottle. I know I think it was just an overall and I think also that um that show was very special to all of us because we had Houston St. John who ended up passing away mm -hmm. just a couple of years later. But that was a show that, and Houston was my sweet mate when we were uh, at Baker. Really? And so, yeah, and then, then um, him doing, playing the lead role and all that, and that was the first time we had met him mm -hmm. and having that experience was very, very special for us. So special. I mean, that dude was what, 16 when he did mm -hmm. the show and he was just fantastically talented. And oh, like I mean, he rock was- star. He was like, we were having like come to Jesus's and he was talking me off the ledge, like an 18 year old, like about to go mm -hmm. to school. And he was like, man, don't worry about it. Like you're great up there, you know, like bolstering my confidence as a 16 year old. And I, I think mm -hmm. that just kind of speaks to the kind of person that he his was. His parents were also just absolute gems. Like his parents were a true testament to the, to the man that he was as well. Absolutely. What else do you remember from that show? Anything? Trying to think specifically. I mean, oh my God! You know what? I there oh, is, there I know exactly what you're about to say. Are you about to talk about my bus driver scene? No, but that's number two. So you go first. <laughs> well, I remember when there was a part of the show where there need to a transition needed to happen. Big set and, transition. Yes, big set transition. And it wasn't, and I was played the bus driver. I played many roles in this in this show. I was many different characters. The, the preacher, <laughs> the, yes. The preacher. I was the man <laughs> singing on the bench. And then I remember that 
they had me come out in front of the curtain and I literally had to just make up lines <laughs> because to fill the time. And then somebody would signal to me when the transition was done and then I would leave. But it was just pure and improv. Ended up being a moment that really stole the show. I'm going to say it's something <laughs> like it started off like I've been driving this bus for 10 damn years or something. Yes, yes. Yeah. I need you to bring that character back like when you host SNL or something. Honestly, we need to. We need to because that was a classic moment. I need to get the DVDs. Oh, my God. Well, okay, so what I was going to say, and you can find this on YouTube. I'm not going to say where. but So there's a moment in the end when Madison and I have like a cutesy little duet moment. Uh -huh. And this girl is a dancer. But in this show, she wasn't really dancing much. So she's like, you know what? In this end little moment, I'm going to throw in like this crazy bat ma. And we were like, yeah, cool. Like, why not? During the show, this girl kicks, not her face, my face with her damn shoe. It's my mic. My mic comes flying off my face. Oh my God. I remember that. I remember that. I remember that. And you know what's so funny is that I often will pull up because there are clips on YouTube and I will pull up me singing Heartbreak Hotel. And I play the, the clip for my friends and I say, why was I so damn extra? Like <laughs> all the entire song just doing the ultimate most. Mm -hmm. If there was, I'm like, I am in the ensemble and I can't even blend in. I'm mm -hmm. just doing the, I said, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I was like, somebody should have told me as a kid, Kayla, can, can you just bring it down like 10 notches, you know? <laughs> was that ever a problem you encountered elsewhere in your theatrical career growing oh, up? Oh, all the time. It was always a problem. <laughs> It was always a problem. And I think at the time as being a kid, I think I just wanted to be a star, you know? Like I just, that's what I wanted to be. It was just like, okay, whatever. And I never liked to fit in. So mm. I think ensemble work just didn't necessarily make sense to me at that time. Sure. Um, and I think it's also hard. I think you have to think about the fact that there are very, there are not a lot of lead black gay roles at all you know and so the idea that my entire life was going to be minimized to being in the ensemble all the time I think also was a part of me and why I always wanted to give the most on stage because I wanted to be remembered because that was the only way that I would ever be remembered you know, within this industry. Part of you, even as a kid, was rejecting that. And you're like, no, okay, if I'm in the ensemble, I'm still going to be doing this thing. And you're going to be able to pick me out, you know, right. because I refuse to conform to this, you know, idea that, you know, is shaped of, of who I am in this industry. Right, right. I think the dream was always like, I remember doing shows and we would do like the final bows and the curtain calls. And you know how the whoever's the lead does their own little bow. And I was just, I remember just thinking in my head, like that'll never be me. I will never get that opportunity to have mm -hmm. that moment because that doesn't exist, you know? And so I think that's why even what I do today is that I had to pave my own way of how to be my own star, mm. you know? because I wanted to feel seen. I wanted to feel like I was important too in the narrative and not just always somebody's ensemble member or somebody's background character, you know? hundred percent. And look what has happened when you just like unapologetically chose to not back down from that and to instead lean in and say, no, actually make way because 
on some level, I also imagine like imagining yourself as a younger person seeing you now and being able to see someone that looks like them, that acts like them, that is who they are, is would also be like massively inspiring to kids, you know? And to have that platform now that you do, I think is just incredible to pave the way for other people like you. Well, thank you. And, and I think one thing that I think a lot of people never understood is that I don't think people understood what it was like to do MTYP slash MTKC. And I was always the only black person, mm. you know? I don't think people understood the fact that if I talked about, cause I was from Wyandotte County, or if I talked about that I was from Wyandotte County in the way that the students would act or how they would respond to that or how they would act as though Wyandotte County was like this terrible place, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and as somebody that like, but that's where I go home to every night. Like that's all I know, you know? Like I don't live out in Johnson County or Overland Park and stuff like that. Like that's not where I'm at. And so, I, it was oftentimes hard for me to find a sense of fitting in because I didn't live the same life that everybody else lived there. You know, it was very different. And I was more prone to cultural things than other people were at the time, you know? And so I think I, I struggled with that as well, but I think it all helped in the, the development of who I am today. A hundred percent. And I can't imagine the experience of being the only person who is different and especially in a very red state and Mm -hmm. in a very um, wealthy county program. Mm -hmm. So to have to combat that and then to still sort of bolster yourself and say, you know, I I know who I am and you all might not know yet, but soon you'll find out is yeah well I mean because I was also always like on scholarship I couldn't afford to do the shows on my own always had to do a scholarship thing so that also made me feel less than already Mm. um I think it was also the fact like people would talk about how they were going to Miller Marley and we go to dance class and stuff like that I couldn't afford to go to Miller Marley you know like I couldn't afford dance classes I remember I didn't even know how to buy dance shoes or any of that stuff you know so it was definitely a culture shock for me yeah I'm sure I'm sure so what was your um what was it like going to school after that to study theater did you encounter more of that culture or did you begin um, to find a, a maybe stronger community? I, yeah, it was definitely because once I got to college, it became a lot more diverse, you know? And and actually it was in college that I finally got to get like my final, like my own bow. But that was when I started to do plays instead mm. of musicals. When I started to do plays, there were a lot more plays that had African-American leads than there Mm -hmm. were musicals. Mm -hmm. And so then that was when I was able to really get that moment to shine and to feel what that felt like. And so I think that's where I gained my my confidence in that. Because I always say that Kansas City uh, raised me, but Philly, because I went to Temple University in Philadelphia, but I always say that Philly made me, Mm -hmm. you know? because there was a different type of culture on the East Coast in general that was very about independence, diversity, uh, about culture, and about being resilient. 
you know? And so I had to learn a lot more skills that I wouldn't have not, I wouldn't have necessarily learned in Kansas City, you know? Yeah. Because I think Kansas City is a very comfortable city. It is very easy to live comfortably in Kansas City. But when you go out to these East Coast cities, it's not the same. You know, it's very, very hustle every single day trying to make it work. Got somewhere to go. I got something to do. You know, it's not as smooth sailing. A hundred percent. And also being able to dive into works that are more dramatic and less musical theater focused and having the like that expansion of like your the plays that you've been exposed to, I imagine was really interesting and also really helpful to develop yourself as an actor and maybe gave you opportunities that you you didn't have in Kansas City because right. there is not really a young, you know, uh, M2IP, but just for plays. Right. Or, you know, I, I'm not aware of many musical stories that are that do have black gay male leads where the story isn't only about their conflict, about their identity, right. you know? Right, right. Like Kinky Boots. And really, it's like Lola isn't even necessarily the lead. You know? Yeah, and there's still some stuff going on today. This was this happened several times when I was there and you know, not necessarily in this program, but in other theaters around Kansas City and certainly mm -hmm. around the nation. This thing of choosing to do these stories or shows that are supposed to feature folks of color and then mm -hmm. yet casting folks who aren't folks of color in those roles. Yes, well, I think what also becomes difficult within Kansas City, and this is where you have to talk about the classism of it all, is the access to the programs, you know, is that a lot of people cannot afford to do a lot of these community theaters in Kansas City because they are in white affluent neighborhoods. And because the majority of urban students live in either KCMO or they live in Wyandotte County, they are not aware of these other opportunities and these other resources. I remember when we did Hairspray, I mean, I primarily did a, a, the majority of the recruiting for all the black people we needed for the show because I knew them, you know, and then we, I remember we had to partner with some schools in KCMO to try and bring some kids in because Johnson County does not have a lot of black people, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and I think what happens a lot of times is that people have these desires to create these shows. It is not necessarily that they don't cast, you know, the, the correct people is that the people that they need don't know about the opportunity. So I think what needs to happen is that the, the organizations and the theater companies need to find a way to do better outreach, you know? And sometimes that means that you have to go to those students. Mm -hmm. That's not a case of that. You just expect them to just show up out of thin air. It's like, how do I bring in a more diverse uh, crowd? And also how do I make it more equally financially accessible to people of lower income families and stuff like that. Oh my God, will you write a thesis so that I can <laughs> read it? I mean, damn, I, I think that's a massive problem just in theater in general is just mm -hmm. access to theater. Theater is traditionally a very affluent hobby, a very yes. white hobby. You yes. know, even having the time to be able to go see a show much mm -hmm. less afford the ticket, much less feel comfortable, mm -hmm. welcome in these huge lobbies. Like I don't even feel comfortable in those lobbies sometimes. And I can't imagine how the vibe that must give off to other folks. So well, um, I mean, my mother's first Broadway show was Wicked and she didn't see that until I was in college, you know? 
So like that was the first time she had ever seen a Broadway show. She'd seen shows I was in, but she hadn't seen a professional Broadway show ever. Mm. Because, and you know, and tours come through Kansas City all the time, you know. But now, especially now when I look back at it, and it's like how much a ticket costs to go see a show, especially now like at the Kaufman Center, people don't have three hundred dollars to just get, especially if they have whole families. They don't have that to just be like go and see it, you know, and I think we take advantage. A hundred percent. There's got to be more work done and in finding innovative ways to lower ticket prices and mm -hmm. make it more accessible for sure. There's got to be a way to subsidize that like a hundred percent, you know, that's, that's the work that needs to be done for sure. Yeah. Did you, did your mother, like, did she ever have any questions about supporting you through your theatrical journey through your artistic journey because maybe she hadn't seen these like professional theater shows but did she ever have any questions about like you know this is something that I'm not sure about or uh no I think my mother saw it more as like because she knew I didn't play sports and I didn't do stuff like that so she saw it more as like an extracurricular activity she saw it as this is something that Kaylin loves to do. And even when I said I was going to go major in theater, like she didn't hold anything against that. Like she supported that fully. And I think that is also a big reason as to why I was able to be successful because mm. I was surrounded by people that believed in me, that believed that I would be able to be successful within this field. You know, now I do something that's a little bit different. And, but I, I still say what I do if I wouldn't have trained in theater or speech and debate, then I wouldn't be able to do this. Because honestly, a lot of times when you watch my content, the majority of it is all improv, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's specifically when I think about the comedy, I know that I really started to train my comedy muscles with doing MTKC and MTYP. Because I always played the comedic roles. I was mm -hmm. always the comedic relief. And I think that is where I learned how to master the timing of comedy because it's all about rhythm and of i course. think a lot of people don't under if you don't have no rhythm then you probably can't <laughs> do comedy you know because it's like that you have to know when to you know make the joke when does the joke land when is it the funniest you know mm -hmm. and timing matters you know and i take that all into account with everything that i do now well now i think it just you've been doing it so long i think it just lives in you and now yeah. it's just you can improv and you sort of be on autopilot a little bit mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah yeah i think i think that's fantastic so what what were you up to pre-pandemic what had you been up to and how did covid sort of flip that or steer it in a different direction so the last thing that i did pre-covid was we went to the super bowl mm. we went to the super bowl that was the last thing that we did uh so we saw Kansas city win who'd you go with uh, we went with Ellen. So we 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 and filmed. It was me and Andy Lassner, and we went to Miami and we filmed uh, down there at the Super Bowl. We were on the field and all that. It was great. We saw Eric Stone Street. Um, so we did that, and then we caught back, and then we went on shutdown. So nothing really was in the works at that time. I actually ended up working more within the pandemic than I did before because mm -hmm. then I did Cake Lights for Food Network. So I shot that during the pandemic. And then I did, for Christmas sake, the Christmas album. Then I did the, for Christmas sake, the movie musical. And then we made a movie. And then that was really the last thing, but that took up the majority of those six months, you know? Yeah. Um, 
Was that and your then, was that your like were you at the helm of the Christmas album creatively? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was that was all me. That was all my idea. I came up with the concept, the story, what I wanted it to be and how I wanted it to be presented. And the reason why I did the movie musical was because um, I felt as though queer people were always left out of the holidays. Mm. You know, like there are no holiday movies that center queer queer people. And some came out this year, but even in those, it was always white people. You know, and I was like, but we also celebrate the holidays. <laughs> right. You know, I was like, right, right, right. so we just disappear, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I made sure to, what I did was that I took the whole LGBTQ plus acronym and I made sure that I have representation for every single letter within it. And I made sure that everybody was diverse. I made sure that I tried to represent the entire spectrum of, you know, nationalities and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it was one definitely one of my, my proudest works, but I'm excited that I got the chance to do it. And I also did it because I feel like in the future, I want to do Broadway, you know? Mm. And I feel like, mm-hmm. because when you make it in Hollywood, nobody asks for your resume anymore. They don't care what you've done. You know, and so I wanted to create something that would show and prove that I knew how to do it, that I was capable of doing it. Mm. And so that was another reason for doing the movie musical. What's your dream show? What do you want to be in? Or you want to write something, something new? I would want to write something new. Mm. I would want, and you know, I've actually been thinking about it because people have been asking me about writing a book. And I was like, okay, well, I could write a book. I could write a limited series. And I was like, but what if I tie it all into like who I am? And I wrote a musical, you know? What if I wrote a musical and did it that way instead? So I'm thinking about it. We're, we're juggling some options. That's so exciting. That's teasing us with that info. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is what was your like journey like during COVID? Did you feel like... Well, you said you were really busy about um, at the beginning of it and during it. So did you feel like a pressure to create or it wasn't more of like these contracts are already signed. So I have to do, you know, X, Y and Z. There was definitely a pressure because once everybody was stuck at home, they started to take in a lot more digital content. Mm-hmm. So I was working to the bone, you know, and it was stressful because I was no longer just going to Warner Brothers and shooting. Now I was shooting everything from my house and it was just me. Like I'm the cameraman, the light man. I'm all of that. You I know, hope you got paid for all those positions as well because Child, damn. you would have wished. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I was doing everything and that was overwhelming and it was stressful. Um, but I will say that there were times that I, I did get to take some time not to do anything, specifically during like the Black Lives Matter protests. I took some time off um, and then I took some more time off uh, later on because it was mentally exhausting. You know, I think the first part of the pandemic was really, 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 really hard mentally. And I had to make sure that I was taking care of myself because I knew that if I was not happy in my life, then I can't make other people happy. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to put, uh, put your oxygen mask on first. Right. And I don't think that I was used to being stuck at home. And it was also the very beginning of not knowing how long it would last mm-hmm. or how long we would be here. You know, now here we are almost a year later, still in the same situation, you know, mm-hmm. but I think now we've all gotten pretty used to it. So it's not very much of a, 
uncomfortable thing. I think we've all figured out that it's just like this for, for right now. And I think it's it's like this until it's not, unfortunately. Exactly. Yeah. And so now we just ride in a wave and make and do, you know, but I think also living in LA has been very different than people living in like Kansas City or different places because we've been on lockdown since the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just had our stay at home order lifted yesterday, you know? Right. And the numbers have been really intense there over the holidays and, and thereafter. I mean, really intense. But I also feel like there's this thing in L.A. and most of California, I think, where people are actually a little more like accepting of the stay at home orders yes. in places like Kansas and Missouri. There's just this huge divide between people who like even refuse to wear masks and, you know, people who don't think that that's, you know, a, a good use of their time or, you know resources which is uh interesting to say the least Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah there's just an overall different i I think you have to think about the different you hear carter barking i do carter um (laughs) there's it has to do with a lot of social differences and culture differences within the different states you know, um, I think Kansas City is a very different city and you have a lot of privileged people, you know, because even with me talking about being from Wanda County, which is considered the poorest county in Kansas City. After leaving there and going to school in Philadelphia and living in North Philly and seeing what actually it looks like to not be financially stable. Wyandotte County actually would probably look a, a lot more wealthy. You yeah. know, it, it wouldn't look as as what people classified as poor. But I think the difference is because when you go to affluent neighborhoods in Johnson County or Overland Park, these are mansions. Mansions, you know? yeah. Like these are man- like these people make millions of dollars. Yep. You know, uh-huh. so yeah, I could see why you would think that there's a difference. You know, but I think 100%. the difference is, is that being rich in Kansas City looks very different than being rich in LA. Like yeah. in LA, Rich, you living in the Hollywood Hills, those are like $30 million homes. You're driving Maseratis and all that. While in Kansas, you can drive a, a, a Toyota Corolla or drive a Chevy and but still be rich, you know, and you just got a big house and with a family and stuff like that. It looks different. A hundred percent. The money goes much, much further here than on the coast, yes. for sure. Yes. But I've noticed that too, even when uh, my partner and I are getting a new apartment people talking to me and saying, well, make sure that it's not in this neighborhood and make sure that it's this. And I just like, each time I've said, you know, I really hate the way that white people talk about space and neighborhoods. When you're saying that anything east of the Paseo or Troost is a bad neighborhood, that's actually a result of over-policing of these communities of color, which Mm -hmm. is a result of red line, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I just like hate hate, hate the way that we talk about spaces being good neighborhoods or mm-hmm. an up and coming neighborhood. And I'm well, like, I mean, if anything, the folks who have been in that neighborhood for a long time should be wary of the young white people moving in and driving up their, their property. Well, you know? I mean, if, if, and, and the thing that I've always struggled with that argument, because if that was the case, then why wouldn't you hear um, people that come from more, you know, low income communities you don't hear them saying that they don't want to send their kids to a high school in the suburbs or something like that because of the 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 increase in bullying and drug use into school shootings always primarily being within white neighborhoods 100%. you know but we we overlook that and we and we go off of basically it's rooted in racism 100%. you know it is solely 
rooted in racism. It has nothing to do that was that is statistically proven. Because if that is true, then no neighborhood is safe. It does not matter that you're that you're walking down a, a suburb. There is still a possibility that something could happen to you, especially within white neighborhoods where we see, you know, uh, domestic violence. We see sexual assault at high rise at high rates and stuff like that. But we overlook all that stuff because in suburbs, especially when you watch things like Desperate Housewives, in the suburbs we like to keep everything behind closed doors. We keep everything in our houses and we don't want everybody to see it. We want it to be all pristine and perfect and cookie cutter, you know, mm -hmm. but it's like, but the true tea of it all, sweetheart, is that your neighborhood ain't that safe either, darling. Mm -mm. Just because your fence has been painted white doesn't mean that the wood isn't rotten. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. You know, and I think uh, people just don't understand the, the racial differences. I remember going to parties and that would be, you know, usually when it would be after a show or something like that. And it would be at somebody's house. And I remember things like people would go do stuff outside of like blow fireworks out in the street. And I remember I would stay in the house, you know, because I was like, if I go out there and do that and the police show up, baby, I'm going to jail, you know? Or when people would be drunk, you know, when their parents were home or parents weren't around. And I remember people would always look at me as the person that was being the Debbie Downer or the person that was being strict or acting like a mom. But it's like, but you don't understand. If something happens and the police come, it's my ass, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm the one that's going to be taken to jail. I'm going to be the one that is held accountable for the actions taking place here, not you. And your parents are going to be able to bail you out. That's not going to be the case for me. So no, I can't move around and I can't do the same stuff that you do at a freedom because the same privileges are not afforded to me in this red state. A hundred percent, 100 percent. And I wish that there was more conversation about around that experience at a younger age mm -hmm. so that folks could begin to understand the you know the the gravity of of their privilege especially as white folks it's conversations mm -hmm. we got to be having with ourselves and with our families because mm -hmm. we have to understand the historical privileges that we had in order mm -hmm. to begin to try and change things and rectify right. things and yeah. make things a more just world. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. So, God, I could talk to you for hours. Um, what What is next for you, Kaylin? After, you know, when the pandemic is hopefully a thing of the past and we mm -hmm. can gather again, um, mm -hmm. what does that look like for you? You know, I, I'm excited because I think for me is that I'm ready to start moving more into the TV space. Mm -hmm. You know, I love making digital content, but I think I want to start doing more TV stuff. There's hosting abilities, there's hosting shows. Um, I'm in talks with a couple of networks right now. So I'm excited to just grow and expand the brand in my career so that I can create the life that, that I want and mm -hmm. not necessarily always the life that is convenient. So yeah, and hopefully I hope to be moving to New York because I don't like living in LA. So I would rather be in New York City. So hopefully that will happen as well. Oh, that's so exciting. You've been to the city several times, right? Oh, all the time. When do I was you, in Philly, oh, baby. Do you just like the hustle and bustle energy more than yes. the laid back? 
I, I like the hustle and bustle energy. I like the blurred lines of the classes. You know, I, I like the fact that people are not too prideful to get on the subway. Everybody has a mission. They got somewhere to go. They just going to make it happen. You mm -hmm. know, that's what I love. I love the resiliency. I love the culture of New York. I love the idea that I can be in my apartment one day and think to myself, oh, I think I'll go see a Broadway show. Or I think I'll go to the Met. Or I think I'll go to this pop-up exhibit. Or I think I'll go take a walk in Central Park. Here in LA, you only got really two options. You're either going to go shopping or you're going to go to eat. And both of those things are very sceny. Everything out here is very sceny. It's mm. not very much a, a casual or, or relaxed or a leisure type of thing. You got to get all dressed up to go to the restaurant. It's not something you just run <laughs> in and pick up and leave. I don't like that. You know, it, it's yeah. too showy here for me. It's like, I like to be able to just walk out on the street. And I think also LA is not a, a city of intellectuals, you know? Mm. And, and I am an intellectual with the way that I think, the way that I process stuff, the way Hold that on. I talk about things. And so I think New Clearly. York has probably, <laughs> New York most likely has more of my type of people that I vibe with. 100%. I, in, in my time in New York, I feel like I've had just like the most amazing conversations with like random bartenders or mm -hmm. a person that I happen to strike up a conversation with on the subway. And I really do feel like one of the things, like one of my great loves of New York City is just how quickly connections can be made. Um, yeah. Even though people do seem like they've got somewhere to be and they won't give you the time of day. Time of day. Right. Underneath all of that, I think New Yorkers are compassionate and really interesting people, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, yes. There, there was a quote that I saw the other day, I'm gonna pull it up, that was about East Coast versus West Coast. And I was like, oh, this is some true tea. So the quote said, when I describe East Coast versus West Coast culture to my friends, I often say the East Coast is kind, but not nice. The West Coast is nice, but not kind. Mm. Now that's true tea. That is interesting. Yes. I always think about this via Kansas City, so not necessarily the West Coast, but I always find it interesting that in New York, everything or on the East Coast in general, hustle bustle, people like kind of maybe would come off as rude to you, mm -hmm. but everyone is like incredibly, for the most part, liberal and pretty mm -hmm. progressive. Mm -hmm. Then in the Midwest, it's kind of the flip flop of that. People are very outwardly kind, usually. We'll wave you on at a stop sign. We'll hold a door open for you. Mm -hmm. But people tend to be way more conservative socially, mm -hmm. financially, mm -hmm. in all aspects. I just find that so interesting. And it makes me think and wonder, is this all performative in the Midwest? I don't think it's performative. And, and I love that you brought that up. I think it is just the the people... I think abuse the idea of what kindness is, you know, or, or mm. what it is to be kind, you know, I think what happens is that I've noticed this because when people ask me, well, what was it like growing up in Kansas? And I'm always like, well, I don't even think I really noticed homophobia, you know, or, or, or recognize stuff like that or outward straight on racism because it was covered up with kindness. Mm. You know, because then when I go other places and people tell me stories or I think back back and I think back on things that have happened in Kansas City and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that was pretty racist. 
yeah, yeah, that's pretty homophobic, mm. you know, but because it was disguised under this veil of, but I'm still going to be kind to you. I'm yeah. still going to be nice to you. Then it's okay. Cause I remember, I remember being at a hotel and um, it was me and somebody else from MTKC. We were staying together in the hotel um, and it was a lot of us there and we had came down for breakfast and I remember one of the mothers asking the other student, oh, so you pay for the hotel, right? Oh, because, yeah, because you could afford to pay for the hotel. And I'm sitting there like, no, actually, I paid for the hotel. And that, and me thinking about it later on, being like, that was racist. A hundred percent. That was a microaggression. You were trying to say because I was Black and from one that county that I couldn't afford the damn hotel, you know? And so it's like, but when everybody is always so kind and always so smiley and just always shaking your hand, it's easy to not realize the the blatant racism, you know? And I think they don't even realize it. Again, because, it's, it's behind closed doors. It's packaged yes. away. It's packaged somewhere in a box, you know? Yes, and I think they don't even realize it because they, are, they can only act as what they are used to in their environment. You know, mm -hmm. and it's like when you are in this place that this is just the culture of it all and you've never been exposed to anything else, how how would you be able to know that what you said wasn't right, you know, or you said something that could offend somebody, mm -hmm. you know? I think what happens is that we don't become willing to uh, be open to new experiences and, and new cultures and open ourselves up to, you know, to take that in. A hundred percent. I have definitely been guilty of that before, but I think actively seeking like education and just allowing yourself to be curious and open, like you said, are like just the first steps to beginning to understand other perceptions and uh, right. perspectives and, you know, really truly begin to learn and grow as a human. Well, I mean, probably even you being living in New York, you know, and having that experience that already opened you up, you know, and you went to Pace, correct? I did, and I also, for my time in New York, lived in uh, Crown Heights in Brooklyn, and I was paying my own rent. I was also a student. I did not have a lot of money, um, and I remember my parents coming to visit me in one of my apartments, and they, they were really nervous because we were at the end of the subway line, and we were the only white people in the subway car. <laughs> and, they, and they said, like, is, is this a safe area? And I was like... How do I even begin to peel back the onion that is right. that? And, you know, I'm just like, yes, we'll talk about this later. Why are you asking that is problematic. But right. um, beginning to have experiences where I was for the only time in my life, the other on, on the train or in any situation forced me to say, why have I never felt like this before? How have these folks felt in past situations and just begin to honestly like shut the fuck up and listen mm -hmm. and read and, you mm -hmm. know, try to understand as much as possible. But yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember being in Kansas City and being pulled over because at the time I drove like a Cadillac because that was my mother's car. And so she gave me her car. And I remember being pulled over for something as simply as saying that they couldn't see my license plate. I remember on my birthday and this was during MTK shit. MTKC show I was going we were all meeting at California Pizza Kitchen on the plaza to for my birthday and I remember my car broke down on the highway and the police came and the police was so mean to me 
Mm. Like, and was mad at me for my car breaking down on the highway. And I was like, what do you want me to do? The cars broke down, you know, and having that experience of, of being scared of, you know, being pulled over and stuff like that and having to be more mindful when I was in, you know, uh, the suburbs like in, in Johnson County or Overland Park and stuff like that and just having to be more conscious of the surroundings around me. Yeah, I think that's just something that growing up as, you know, growing up as a white person, you never fucking consider that because you're always fucking safe. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In those yeah. situations, you would never be targeted for something like that. And I, we got to begin to shift the conversation and, you know, understand yeah. those perspectives. I think that's just step one. Richard, I think in my work today, everything for me is all about representation and visibility. And that's why I think it's more important for me to create my own table instead of always begging a seat at somebody else's. Yes, you know? absolutely. We should talk about this when we wrap because we're almost out of time. But um, yeah. that is a fantastic quote. Fantastic. Um, wow. I can't believe it's already been 30 minutes. Kaylin, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. You are such a joy, uh, such an intellectual, as you say. <laughs> um, we can't wait to see what's next for you. Um, let's catch up again soon, okay? All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Fad. See you soon. Thank you.